Well, again, like a huge thank you for doing this. This is awesome. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be inspired by what you've done. Um, (laughs) But do you mind if I ask that question that we just said? Why do you think there are so many really cool, interesting aerospace companies in the LA region? Yeah. So I think it's probably a lot of different factors, but the main one that I think is, you know, back in the 90s, this was a hub for Hughes and Boeing and TRW, which was then bought by Northrop. And so there was a huge, huge hub of industry in this area. And a lot of those people have since left big aerospace and gone off on their own, started their own companies. And I think that's a big reason why you're seeing a huge boom in tech. And there's also a lot of talent here based on the large industry that I previously mentioned. So I think that has been one of the big things that's happened over the last, I don't know, 15 years that has probably contributed to a big portion of what you're seeing in startup world. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, when do you think that started? Because obviously there's the NASA sites in Florida. Have Mm -hmm. some people gone there and then some people stayed? What did that kind of migration look like? There's a little bit of startup in Florida, but I think when people live in LA and they live in Florida, they are polarized on, I like one or I like the other. And you basically pick and you stay there. Right. Um, So I picked, I like the beaches in Los Angeles better. And I like the um, uh, accessibility to everything, which is accessibility to skiing in mountains and desert. And um, LAX is like 20 minutes away, so I can go anywhere I want. So a lot of those factors played into why I stuck it out in LA. Um, Some are subject to change, but uh, for now, I like it here. And I think a lot of people feel the same. And in Florida, obviously, you have different amenities. So if if you want to be close to the launch site, um, I think a lot of launch vehicles, uh, launch vehicle companies will end up having a site either in Florida, Vandenberg, or close to, but it might not be where their headquarters is located. So it's a, an interesting kind of coast to coast look. And then also in Los Angeles, um, this like budding kind of tech startup community is growing. And I think a lot of VCs are starting to have more of a presence in Los Angeles. And so that has um, contributed also to um, the startup world in the Los Angeles area. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I couldn't find this online, but I did you grow up in LA? I don't think that was the case. I grew up in San Diego. So okay. my dad was military. Um, He was uh, Navy JAG for a number of years, um, both active and reservist. And so he was stationed in San Diego and he didn't want to leave. So he took all of his posts in San Diego and took some of his, um, you know, two week stints elsewhere, but then always came back to San Diego because he grew up in San Diego as well. Oh, my family. five generations ago came across the U S from the East coast all the way to San Diego. And so they've been in San Diego for many, many, many years. And I'm the defector. That's cool. Well, let's, before we get into Epsilon and how you built that, I mean, what was, what was your life like growing up? You had a parent, a father in the military. Um, Is that kind of what set 
set your interest in kind of these big projects like aerospace, like aircraft in general? Not, not really. My dad was always enamored with aircraft, but since he was a JAG, he was a military lawyer. So he was not, um, active in the, um, in the active duty sort of way that is, um, people think about when they think about active duty military and through his reservist, I, I developed a love for aircraft just because I would go to the base and, Um, I went to a school that was far away from my parents' house and we used to have to drive by the Miramar at that time, Naval, Naval base. Um, it is now a Marine Corps base. And, um, you would always see the pilots performing their touch and go training because they are practicing landing on an aircraft carrier. And so you'd see them flying over where my house was located and, practicing landing and then not hitting the mark because you, they have to uh, clip on and stop really quickly. So you would see them practicing the land and take off again um, as I was driving to school every morning. And that was really, really cool. And after seeing that for a number of years, I started to become enamored with shuttle launches and I would watch every shuttle launch um, kind of no matter what time, I mean, as long as I was allowed. Some right. were not at the most <laughs> ideal times. Um, but at that point, I would um, watch the news to see what was going on um, because there was no YouTube playback. Um, so you had to watch it live or you had to catch like short clips on the news. And whenever I could watch the shuttle launches, I would watch them with my parents. Um, and that sort of developed my love for space. And when I was in high school, I decided I wanted to do all the math and science because that I seemed to gravitate towards those um, pieces of the curriculum. And I went to take all math and science classes and my college counselor, because at that time, I don't know if they still do this, but in my um, high school, we had a college counselor and the college counselor would meet with you and ask you what you wanted to study. And I said, just pick something that's hard. I don't care what it is. And she said, well, what are you interested in? And I said, space. And I said, there's no um, major that is space. And she said, well, you could do aerospace. And I said, yeah, but that's planes. I want to be like outer space focused. And this was 1999. Um, I date myself a little bit. Um, but she said, well, there are a few, a few universities that will do an astronautics kind of focus. So it was more aerospace with an astronautics focus. Obviously, now there are a lot more space type um, majors that you can have, but at that time there was very there were very few. And I said, okay, that sounds good. So it was between chemical engineering because I also became enamored with the oil industry and the operations of an oil rig, and I liked fire. So right. <laughs> okay. those types of things kind of lended themselves well to both. Uh, rocket launches and oil rigs. I don't know how, but those were the two things that I really liked. And, you know, my mom said, you know, just pick whatever you think will get you where you want to be. And I said, well, I'm just going to go do the space thing. And at that time, you know, it wasn't normal because 
you know, you go for electrical engineering or computer science or mechanical engineering. And this whole like space focused uh, major was sort of this niche that nobody thought might amount to something. And I sort of took it from there. I, I went to USC and majored in aero astro, which at that time was aerospace astronautics. And now there's actually an astronautics major, which is it wasn't there when I was at school. So, I mean, you recall all this stuff like very vividly, which I think is awesome. I, did you always know that you wanted to start your own thing at some point? Because again, you've worked at some crazy companies, and you, I yeah. think you were one of the first women to actually train the astronauts to go into space at SpaceX, or the first women woman. So yeah. that's like that's a pretty it's a pretty big milestone. Yeah. So I was the um, the first. Uh, crew trainer at SpaceX. And it just so happens that I'm a woman also. And um, I think I started to get an inkling of the fact that I could start something on my own after seeing the startup community growing. I did not, um, I didn't graduate college thinking I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, I graduated college thinking I want to make a difference in the space industry. And I saw my impact at Northrop Grumman, um, the, what it was, um, small, but mighty. And then I saw my impact at SpaceX, um, obviously larger impact that I had there. And when I left SpaceX, it was, you know, how do I continue making an impact? How do I continue sort of helping the space economy evolve? And how do I sort of help create what I want to see in this ecosystem of space. And I think that's why I started my own thing. Um, and becoming an entrepreneur was a bonus. Right. No, yeah. that may, I, I do find that a lot. Many, many people I've interviewed don't think of starting a company. It almost mm-hmm. happens in some respects. Things just align. Yeah. Were, were there any like nuances when you were first building or I mean, you're still building, but were there any nuances in the early days? I remember in one interview, you said you don't have any salespeople on your team because it's a common thing. Um, Maybe you could speak to what what it takes. Well, we still don't have any salespeople on our team. Um, We just hired um, the first person to do direct sales uh, not more than a week ago. And we were doing founder-led sales. This is coming up on two years now. And I think that is the reason why we did it is because we wanted to be really close to the customer. And I still want to be really close to the customers because no matter what customer I'm talking to, I'm learning something and I want to be um, a leader who is constantly evolving and learning from what the people around me are doing. And if I can have some of those people be the customer, they help inform what we build. So I want to be as close to them as possible. I also happen to really like and uh, respect all of our customers. So, um, and I feel very, very lucky to be supporting them. So I'm, um, I wanted to be in a unique position to fill that role for the company. Um, Some other weird things. I mean, you know, we were a very small team for a long time, we were five people for the first six months. And then we were seven people for the first, uh, after that, for the next five or six months. So we've grown the team 
pretty slowly, but we tried to grow the team to match um, the growth in our customer base so that we weren't adding more members of the team than we had work to do. And now we're at the place where we have more work than people. So we're adding more people to the team. Um, was there anything that I had to learn? Yeah. That's awesome. But like, was there anything counterintuitive about starting starting off with managing people coming from larger organizations and now creating something from scratch? Yeah. Something that I don't know if it's surprising, but something that I didn't think of is the amount of time um, I or anybody else in the leadership spends on how we progress the team culture and the company culture is something that I didn't fully appreciate how much time and thought and effort goes into that. And so I'm spending a lot of time thinking about as we grow, how do we perpetuate this wonderful team culture that we have right now? And it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about just to make sure that when we are at 50 um, and I can't talk to every single person every month, um, there are going to be lots of things that I am not going to be involved in. And I want the team culture to already be set such that any of those meetings would run the same way, no matter what member of the leadership team is there. And do you have any like principles or frameworks for balancing all this kind of stuff? Because you, you've got other responsibilities, right? You've got yeah. kids. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've got like financial commitments of some kind, whether that's mortgage, you know, you got to pay bills every month. It, yeah. It's hard to balance. And I think a lot of people just, they overlook how difficult it can be day to day because there, you know, there's no pause button when, no, for these things. There, there is no pause button. Um, I think... Being really clear, I have a really great partner. Uh, my husband is very supportive and we have clear delineation of responsibilities. So uh, fortunately for me, he takes care of all of the home stuff um, and I take care of the kids stuff. So we have um, sort of compartmentalized responsibilities such that I'm never going to try to pay the TV bill. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. And yes, I, I still have a TV bill. Okay. Not, I know not everybody has a television bill anymore, but, um, you know, he's never going to go grocery shopping. So like, these are the things I know I have to do every week and I fit them in to my schedule based on when the other things are I have to do. So something I actually learned while I was um, at SpaceX working with the astronauts is, you know, on the space station, every astronaut's time is booked in five minute blocks. So if you um, have to perform a task uh, and you only have five minutes to do it, what's the best way to get it done in that five minutes is to have it already planned out and you know mm -hmm. what you're supposed to do. You know what the criteria is to complete that task and you just do it in that five minutes and then move on. Um, and I, I will not say that I book my time in five minute increments because I don't, but uh, the thing that I learned is that you have to have your criteria and your compartmentalized work kind of laid out for you. You know, I know I have an hour for uh, a workout in the morning and if I don't do it, I'm not a happy person. So I make time for that. Then I make time for having breakfast and sitting down because I think that Community is very important. So my community at home, my community at work. Um, and if I don't spend time with my home community, 
things start to fall apart. If I don't spend time with my work community, also things start to fall apart. And so making sure that you're taking the time for each of those is really important to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't know if that helps. No, it does. Like, how do you think about balance and temperament? And the reason I say that is because on our last call, you'd mentioned the Elon Musk email about coming coming into work on the weekends, something small like that. Because on one hand, yeah. on one hand, I agree with you. Like, I I really have an unhealthy lifestyle in a lot of respects. Working on this <laughs> podcast, I wish I I wish I had a bigger friend group. I wish I went out more. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, I. I challenge the position sometimes where, you know, balance is important because the way to get ahead sometimes, unfortunately or fortunately, is to put in those extra hours, is to stay up late, is to come in early. So what do you think? Well, I think about it in terms of when are you the most effective? And if you are and can be extremely effective for 15 hours a day, props, mad props to you. Uh, Most people cannot. So most people are effective in 45-minute chunks. So if you can uh, think about if you had an hour-long meeting or an hour-and-a-half-long meeting, were there times when you were nodding off in that meeting, not right. attention? <laughs> yes. Because I am 100% sure that every person is going to say yes. So I would say you know you book out your time in chunks of time rather than thinking about putting in extra hours what are the things you want to get done and how do you bound the problem of those things? You know, here are the 10 things I want to get done today. And if I don't get them done, you know, here are the five that are the most important and here are the things that can wait till tomorrow. Under Okay. So tasks to complete versus just sheer hours put in. That makes sense. Yeah. Because if you think about it as sheer hours, you're always going to say, oh, I only worked 10 hours today. And you're going to think you're behind. But if you actually right. had a list of things you had to complete and you said, if I want to get ahead, here are the 10 things I have to complete today. And say you got to nine, you're going to be pretty happy about getting to nine. Whereas Understood. maybe tomorrow you might only get five done, but then they might be bigger tasks. So looking at it as um, kind of your task list or the things you want to do to get ahead rather than just time, because it's not always just sheer willpower um, that gets people ahead. Right. Absolutely. I. I was talking to another individual on the, this was a while ago. His name was Ian Burgess. And he, he said one line that always, when he said work-life balance, it really is a trade-off in some respects in the sense that you can't accomplish infinite things in each domain. Yeah. So when do you know, like, I'm sure, again, my, my, my dad works in real estate. I'm sure there were days where he felt like his career was very stable, but his family life wasn't and vice versa. Yeah. So how do you know when to step in on one versus take that step back from the other. Yeah. I think your friend Ian was extremely right. Um, You have to keep a handle on which one is getting out of control and at what time. And for me, um, I have two kids, they're six and seven uh, right now. And if they need extra attention, they will be extra annoying. I'll just Right. <laughs> Say it like that. So that's when I know I have to take a minute and I have to give them a little bit of attention, sit down with them, play a game, uh, play cards or cribbage or monopoly with my oldest or like build a tower or um, read with my youngest because they're needing attention. They, they act out more. Um, and then with work, um, the same thing. People 
aren't acting out, but you know, you can feel the inertia of things starting to get out of control in any part of your life. And then, you know, you have to sort of devote more of your effort or time to one or the other. Um, and out of control uh, with kids is just easier to explain. Um, right. But the same can be true for work as well. Are there any things that you learned being a parent that you take to management? Like that same analogy, when to step in, when to take the step back? I don't know if I learned it as a parent, um, but I think I learned it over the course of you know, working and becoming a parent at the same time. And I think I have become a much better listener over the course of the years after I became a parent because the kids force you to listen to them. Whereas in the work working world, people aren't forcing you to listen to them, but they will be unhappy if you don't listen to them. And I've, I've been on both ends of that. I've been unhappy because my manager didn't listen to me. And I have seen when people are not being listened to and they get unhappy. So it, it kind of is, is one of the things that I have now applied to both uh, sides of my life. Right. Well, I think that goes back to morale, right? Being yeah. able to motivate a team and especially in the advent of remote work that a lot of companies are experiencing now. I think I think it was Zapier that kind of started that trend. They were 100% remote, but now, I mean, good Lord, half of the company is going through Y Combinator yeah. are fully remote. So like, yeah. how, how do you maintain that morale? Like your team, I believe, is mostly in person, but... No, we're fully remote. Yeah, so people ask us where we are, and I say uh, everywhere and nowhere. Okay. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you maintain that morale? It's not easy. It takes time, uh, which is something that is new to me. Uh, because when I was at SpaceX and also at Northrop, it was you come into work, you go get a coffee, you chat with people at the coffee stand, or you walk from building to building with people. You have one on one with your boss where you sit down uh, at a table and you chat with one another. Those things don't happen anymore. Um, so the things that we try to do is we try to give everyone a voice um, because remote, I'm sure you've experienced this, the quietest person in the room never has the stage. And so you have to make sure that the quietest and the loudest person all have kind of an equal voice and feel inspired to speak up and comfortable. And so we're, we try to cultivate that safe space where everybody can say something. And uh, that just means in the beginning, you noting as a leader in your team, noting that the, the quietest person isn't going to speak up and you have to ask them a question or call on them, but you have to give them a heads up, obviously, that you're going to do that. Um, so saying, hey, um, I'm going to ask you a question so that I can give you the floor because I don't, I know you don't want to speak up on your own. Are you okay with that? And uh, making sure that you have everybody getting a voice. And then uh, something that we do that I've heard a lot of people do now is you, uh, we have meetups every quarter. So because we're small and remote, uh, the overhead that we have is not enormous. And so we spend our resources getting everybody together physically every quarter, um, which has been 
really wonderful for the team morale. We celebrate, we plan, we learn about one another, and that's been really good for us. Do you guys think you'll ever like get an office and go fully in person? I don't think we'll ever be fully in person. I think we're always going to have a remote uh, group of people. I do think at some point we will have an HQ and have an office where people can come together. But I don't see us saying you have to come to the office. Understood. We're all in the office. I I don't see that happening. So I, I guess, how do you encourage people to work smarter and then not harder then? Because I think one of the things that people got got a little bit used to when it came to remote work is the lifestyle associated with it, yeah. right? You're not going to take an hour for lunch. You'll take an hour and a half. You won't stop work at five. You'll stop work at 4.30. And I think those things mm-hmm. can compile. So I guess the, on the other side of it, how do you make sure the trust is there? But again, you're encouraging your team to build the right habits and balance, but also know that this is your team as well as yeah. everyone else's. It's this collective effort. I feel like that can be really hard sometimes when you're just chatting through a screen. It's very hard. I don't look at how many hours people spend on any given day. Um, People are given enough work to keep them busy for the amount of time. And when people are working, I I don't care. Um, People take... Most people don't even take a lunch. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I assume the stuff that you're building, it's like really hard. <laughs> so I forget to eat lunch all the time. And uh, one of my co-founders actually has to send me a message and say, did you eat lunch yet? Um, to remind me. And I think a lot of our team feels really a lot of ownership on the product. Yeah, that's super important. Yeah, I don't have to encourage anybody to work more. Um, I actually have to encourage them to uh, take time with their families and stop working for a little bit. Because I found that the the line between work and life got really gray during this uh, kind of like push to work from home. And so all of your work sort of bleeds into your life. Like if you saw me uh, and you scheduled me a 7 a.m. meeting, I would show up. Why? Because I'm here and my desk is in my house. Uh, in the past, if you schedule me a 7 a.m. meeting at work where I have to drive 40 minutes to get there, I'd tell you you're out of your mind. But um, if you schedule me a 7 a.m. meeting, you can fully expect that there will be children running behind me and a dog sleeping right. behind me. <laughs> and there will be some crazy going on in the background, but I will be here with you, but there might be some distractions. So it just depends um, on where you how big you have that gray space. And for me, the gray space is very large because work and life are the same for me um, because I basically live to, to do this. This is, this is my life now. So I love it. How are you playing for the future then? You mentioned you might get an HQ. Do you believe in anything like five-year plans, 10-year plans, or I'm not too sure. Is it something smaller, like a three-month plan? Well, we have three-month plan, we have one-year plan, we have five-year, um, and it's a lot on the product side. So what, what do we want our product to do and how do we want our product to change um, something in the space that we're operating in? And 
that's where we think about, you know, hey, if we get to this point and our product does these things and we're supporting these customers, then we've been successful in, you know, the three to five year mark. Um, I don't know if I think out 10 years because uh, I'm going to be 40 soon. So that makes me 50. So I don't want to think about that quite yet. Let me ask you this, for any advice that you might have for young people, particularly wanting to break into some of these industries, Mm -hmm. what would you say to them and how would you recommend they optimize their time given that their whole life is ahead of them in a lot of respects? Well, I would probably say to start with a known entity and get some pretty good experience there. So a couple of years experience. I was told early on in my career, don't start your master's degree until you've already worked for three years. Um, I started my master's degree after one year. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but getting some like really hard experience uh, at a large company, I think is really useful. And you can kind of jump around at large companies. You can take on responsibility over here and then you can take on responsibility over here. I think that's really nice. And then you can kind of hone in on where your strengths and weaknesses are, where your passions are. And then you can kind of branch out into, hey, I want to go to a startup. Hey, I want to go to a series B company that's more than a hundred people. See where your comfort is. And then I would say, you know, don't be afraid of taking a risk. If you're young, take, take all the risks you want. Um, because you won't be able to take as many risks when you get older. Um, I'm really lucky in that I was able to take risks and I am very comfortable with taking risks. But as people get later in their career, their comfort with risk kind of uh, decreases. And so I would encourage young people to get some hard experience at a large company and then take some risks, just kind of like suss out where their passions are. Um, And then... On the family side, the uh, the best advice I was ever given, I was given from uh, someone I knew early at Northrop Grumman. And she said to me, don't wait until you're ready or you have enough money to have kids because you'll never be ready and you'll never have enough money. And uh, I waited because I didn't meet my husband until later. But if I had been younger, I would have had probably had kids younger. So that's my best advice I can give. That's amazing. Okay. I'm going to get a little selfish here because I am doing, I'm kind of doing the opposite. I, and I think there are some people that are following in the footsteps as well. Like I've worked at a couple YC companies Mm -hmm. and my logic is like Google, Amazon, Facebook, they're always going to be there, but Mm -hmm. I want to try and get in at the early stage and see if I can become part of this like rocket ship journey. Sure. Do you think that's a bit presumptuous? Well, it depends what role you're going for at these startups, because um, I think what I've seen with a bunch of the startups that I've worked with is that people that have hard experience at larger companies, they have some of the like first principles down already. Whereas if I had started this right out of school, I wouldn't know what I was building. I wouldn't know where to go. I wouldn't be able to move as quickly. and I look back and fall back on a lot of my previous experience to inform how I build the team, how we build the product, how we talk to our customers. And I wouldn't have done it this way 15 years ago. Understood. So that's why I, that's why I give that um, kind of recommendation. 
For sure. And I think, well, I'll in the podcast description we'll detail what your company does, but it's yeah. it's a pretty hard task. Um may, may, maybe detail it a little bit here. Um, because we do have yeah. a little bit more time. So when you think about operations of a space mission, you think about mission control with all of the data and plots. And if you think back to some of the Apollo kind of video, you'd have all of the kind of plots with paper, and then you'd have a booklet of all of your operational procedures and documentation. Um, Well, a lot of those plots with paper have turned to digitized um, plots where you can pull up that data later. But a lot of the booklets, um, they are still booklets that you can either print out as PDF or you have them as Word documents um, or, you know, confluence pages or things of that nature. And what we're trying to do is um, make all of that fully digital so that if I take an action, send a command to my spacecraft, evaluate telemetry and say, okay, I passed this check. You can see wherever you are, as long as you're connected to the internet, that I have taken that action. I don't have to call you and tell you. Um, and then if you wanted to look back from two weeks ago to see what commands I sent, what telemetry I evaluated, you'd be able to see that relatively quickly and easily um, without go- coming to me and saying, hey, Laura, where's the record of what you did? Um, because that takes a lot of time, both out of your day and out of mine. If you just could look it up, it would just save everybody a lot of heartache. Um, and so really not just digitizing it, but making it fully synchronized, making it, um, a database of Azron, a database of potential things, uh, anomalies, things that you might have to do on your vehicle. Um, and not just for the space industry, there are a lot of similar processes across lots of different complex engineering um, applications that, you know, automotive or aviation space, uh, just to name a few, that um, have similar type of operational documentation. And we're trying to kind of bring that into the next century. So it's like, if you were to think about Asana plus GitHub plus maybe like Google Docs for uh, bring all of those together and apply it to what you're doing for your space mission. That's kind of what we're building. Yeah, and it, it can it can be applied to multiple industries, and I think yeah. that's what's really cool about it. You have a passion for aviation, deep sea exploration as well. Yeah. How much are you, how much of your bandwidth are you allocating to this stuff? Like, are there any cool projects on the side you can <laughs> tell us about or anything like that? There are some really cool projects on the side. Um, I. Wish I could talk about them now, but um, there are some really cool companies doing amazing things that we're supporting, and uh, we will start talking about them very soon. Um, but right now, I would say about 80% of our customer base is um, in space, both launch, um, satellite operations, uh, integration testing, manufacturing, training. Um, and then we have a couple in automotive, aviation, uh, and robotics. So I know you mentioned the, uh, the space and ocean exploration. feel really passionate about both. And uh, it's interesting how very similar they are. Um, the oceans in, throughout the world are largely inaccessible. So if you are to explore the ocean, with a vehicle that resembled a space vehicle, but obviously was propelled differently. Um, the operations, communication, 
would be very, very similar. Um, so it's just fascinating to me. Man, you guys should like collaborate with National Geographic or something. That would actually be so cool. Mm. I'm down if you know some people. I can make it happen. I, I'm pretty good at cold emailing now from the podcast. So <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you are pretty good at cold emailing. <laughs> um, okay, we've got three more minutes. Okay. One final question. This is my favorite question to ask because of how all-consuming startups are. But what is something that you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? Oh, man. I'm really passionate about health and exercise. Um, I exercise every day and I have gone, I've done lots of different, um, experiments with how people eat and how my family eats. So I, growing up, uh, my mom will tell you this isn't true, but she didn't cook a lot. And so, um, she'll tell you she cooked, but I'll, I'll tell you after what, what she cooked. Um, hopefully she doesn't listen to this, but, um, I did eat some TV dinners and a lot of frozen meals and I'm really passionate about eating healthy foods and knowing exactly what goes into my family. And so I read up a lot on how different foods react in the body and I kind of test out how I feel after eating different foods and then try to find out what is making me stronger or more fit um, because I want to be the strongest I can be for the longest amount of time because I want to be around for a long time. I was telling my son this morning that I want to meet his grandchildren. So this yeah. is this is my, my other passion. Um, and obviously exercise, you know, I run, I play volleyball, I play tennis and golf, I swim. Um, I do a lot of things with my kids. And so that's something I, I love. So going back to my mom, she would make... Uh, chicken and mushroom soup. She made lasagna and she made meatloaf. And these were her dishes and they were all very good. But uh, looking back, probably not the healthiest options. So I, I try to do those also, but my kids would surprise you with what they eat. My youngest, his favorite food is mushrooms. Oh, wow. And okay. Yeah. At some point, my oldest uh, said that he liked quinoa the most of everything and stuffed peppers. I'm like, all right, that's fine. That's awesome. So, so yeah, they're they're pretty adventurous in what they will try, and uh, I think that's that's something that has developed uh, through having family. That's cool. Okay, well, let's leave it here. And uh, Laura, a huge thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. this. Is awesome. I hope the yeah, time went by fast. Fun. I did for me. <laughs> <laughs>